This is Geek Gab with your hosts, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, March 25th, 2023. Dornall, how was your week? Hey, man. Uh, it's good. It's good. Good to be back. Tons of stuff going on here in, uh, in my space. Not the uh, ancient website of indie music promoters, but uh, my personal uh, space. Uh, things things at the homestead are, are going interesting. I thought I might fill you in on that. Uh, I've got uh, I've got a sinking house. One of the uh, there's apparently there's a, a load bearing wall directly on some floor joists here that have been sinking for a while. So. I'm going to figure out what it's going to take to get that repaired, which uh, if, if if I need, wanted money this year, that would be a great way to not have any. Oh, boy. Um, spring is here. I've been spending a little more time outdoors all week, which is very nice. I'm still working from home in the home office. So uh, when I take a break, I go out in my backyard because that's uh, – uh, it's just the best. I miss people from time to time, but let me tell you what. Uh, it's really good. So I'll have more details on my upcoming gardening projects on future episodes. So that's All how right. I'm doing here. That's how I'm doing here. What about you? Well, I noticed that uh, none of what you talked about involved... Um, social media or MMOs, and yet you seem a lot happier. Could could you explain that to me? Because I'm just all confused now. I, I think we were expecting a relationship uh, to go one way, uh, that relationship to, to go in parallel, and I forget the word there, but it's actually inverse. It's not proportional. It's, in, it's inversely proportional. And uh, I, I would go so far as to say is that there's enough evidence that a reasonable person might infer that there is a strong correlation between those two things. So I'm glad you brought it up. Yes, I... A strong uh, inverse correlation. Inverse correlation. Absolutely. Uh, I have taken a break from Twitter. Uh, I chose to log off for Lent, and uh, I don't think I'm going back. And I've said this before, but uh, the last time I rejoined Twitter, I uh, did it to keep in touch with the BroSR guys and to actually get the game invites for our weekly Trollopulous game. Uh, now we've switched to using Discord for all that kinds of communication, and the one thing I went back to Twitter for is no longer there. And don't get me wrong, I've heard through those channels that uh, if you enjoy using Twitter for what it's for, which is arguing with people um, and talking about D&D, it's still doing that but it certainly wasn't making my life any better. 
And as far as video games go, uh, I will admit to having a bit of a slay the spire problem. Uh, it's a great way to sort of unwind and, and kill an hour. But I keep away from any other online gaming. So most other types of video games from now on. Uh, and I would say the I would say that inverse relationship is pretty strong. All right. Well, folks, you heard it here. Contrary to what uh, the always honest tech companies say, the <laughs> tech companies who love you, um, more social media does not make you happier. Who knew? Who knew? Um, speaking of big tech companies, I'm dealing with uh, the obsolescence of my software here at the uh, at the geek gab central where i do all my uh, away from work computing and i've got an old machine i'm still running windows 7 on this thing and uh, i'm starting to run into software that i'd like to use being unavailable uh, something is something as simple as keeping a google drive in sync with local files is uh is not possible at this point. Uh, so I may be looking at fighting the the big tech upgrades. Uh, it, in case you're curious, because I know you're an Apple guy, so this might just be a curiosity for you, but I've been using Windows 11 at work since December, and it's just what you'd expect. It's it's the it's the next version of Windows. All sorts of bloatware. It's it's big, ugly garbage in a lot of ways um windows 10 was great uh, admittedly also t full of bloat windows 10 was great i i don't i'm not impressed with windows 11 yet although it is just a it's kind of a marginal increment an incremental update of windows 10 in my opinion so i'm not excited by it but I think everybody's using their phones and tablets for so much of everything these days. Your your desktop operating system seems a lot less important these days than it used to be. Well, and, and I'm going to say this in Microsoft's defense. Um, just let that sink in for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm enjoying it. Um, Apple long ago moved to annual updates to uh, the Mac operating system. To where it doesn't really have, I mean, they still do a show every year when they announce it, it as part of a bigger show of announcing updates to, you know, the watch OS and uh, iOS and iPad OS and so forth. Um, but every year is a new update to the OS and they do have a lot of features because they update everything in the OS, you know, they update iTunes and mail and, uh, the core OS, and they do major changes when it's necessary, but it's still all an incremental update. And over the course of like, if you looked at five years, yeah, that's a huge difference. But every year to you, it doesn't seem like that huge, huge difference. So 
the fact that uh, Windows 11 over Windows 10 is just an incremental update. Um, you know, being an Apple fan, I can't really say anything because that's the way Apple's doing it too. So, yeah, and and Microsoft would very much like to copy Apple at at this point. Uh, you could even see it in their UI, moving all the start buttons down in the bottom middle of the screen where you know the windows start button was always always in the bottom left but whatever it's, it feels like some weird late stage cyberpunk dystopia oh yeah it is uh, the reason why bottom left is great is because if you throw your mouse really really hard in that direction, it'll just stop on top of the button. Uh, it's called Fitz Law, and it's one of the easier things about GUI design. I'm really hating the direction this conversation took because it's really academic. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's called the Geek Gab, so we had, we had got, to go in. It's got infinite depth. Because it doesn't matter how hard you throw your cursor, you know, as long as you throw it hard enough, always get there and stay there because your cursor just stops. So you could, no matter how hard you overthrow it, it just stops right there and you can click down and pow, that menu will pop up. Whereas if it's in the middle of the bottom of the screen, then you have to worry about left and right you know zooming in on the uh on the target um and that means you have to kind of get finicky with it whereas if it's just in a corner pow you can just go right there without thinking about it and it just saves you time if that's the most important thing on the screen in the os which the start button is it's your main menu where everything is put then having it in the corner makes it uh, makes it easy for everybody to get to no matter what. And thankfully, that's an option. Uh, in in Windows 11, you can switch back to traditional taskbar layout. And as everybody everybody who's reconfigured Windows knows, if uh, and this doesn't apply to normies because normies can't find the settings button for anything. But the first thing you do is. When uh, you when you get an update and you realize that they've sort of shifted everything back to their defaults, is that you have to go fix your taskbar options and your folder options and this and that. Or like uh, Video Mirador says, uh, Linux has the reputation of of uh, you just uh, you get your you get your UI and and all your settings just the way you like them. You get that you you create that really nice butt groove in the couch, and and you just stay there for years. This is not a this is not a endorsement of Linux ever, but <laughs> I installed I, Linux uh, on my Mac in the uh, early days of OS OS ten. I uh, uh, I work with a lot of uh, service authors, sir, uh, you know, microservice engineers and cloud engineers. Uh, they would fully endorse Linux in a data center if you're writing 
if you're running cloud services, they say they say run them on Linux, not Windows. That's that's the only endorsement of Linux I've I can give. Um, hey, let's move on to exciting stuff. Okay. <laughs> I just uh, I am rather more ecumenical now than I was in my uh, young fiery days, um, and I guess that's because. Uh, Apple has kind of gone out and made its bones and uh, it's not constantly being in threat of, you know, literally shutting down and taking everything away and people who used to make all those stories about Apple being bought by this company or that company and uh, Apple crashing they've all had to shut up um so it's really on its uh it's really on a stable path right now and they would have to make lots and lots of big mistakes on a sustained basis for years or decades before the company would be threatened with going out of business um Worldwide, um, you know, they're just solid. They're one of the leading tech companies now. And when I was buying Macs, they were tiny. You know, they were threatened with death and destruction all around the corner. So, yeah, I don't have to be. Fiery. I can just say, look, you want to use Windows? Use Windows. It's great. If that's what's best for you and your computing situation, please. I'm not going to argue. Um, you need to use Linux or you want to use Linux or you love using Linux. Go for it. I'm not going to, you know, badmouth it. I have some opinions about the operating systems, but not so much that I get in arguments about them. I pay attention to what people say. So, you know, I get a feel for what's going on with those operating systems. Um, but I always have to remember that the people who are talking are the people who are dissatisfied. And the people who aren't talking are probably satisfied. And there's a lot of people I don't hear from. So I don't have to. I don't have to, I, I have to take that into account when people are talking about an operating system. So there's a lot of people who aren't complaining, who are satisfied with it, or at least who aren't so dissatisfied that they're complaining. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> you are done. I want to talk about D&D. &D. That's about it. D &D? Show's over, folks. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> You're done, all right. Um, do we want to do the two non-D&D things uh, before we spend the rest of the show on D&D? Because I have a feeling we're going to spend the rest of the show on D&D. By all means, what's on your mind? D&D's all I've got. What's on your mind, DW? So I watched The Last of Us, which is that HBO show based on 
that video game, also called The Last of Us, coincidentally, um, which was on Sony, on uh, on Sony's, it was an exclusive to Sony's PlayStation Three originally, and then they remade it for PlayStation Four, and they re re made it for the PlayStation 5. And it was about um, Cordyceps zombies. And I thought it was actually a cool game. It was about zombies who had fungus growing out of their bodies. And this fungus drove the actions of the humans. It, it grew in their brains and grew out of their bodies and drove the actions of the humans so that they would essentially reproduce more people with cordyceps. Um, and you may have seen little videos on the internet about ants who get cordycepted. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like being incepted only with fungus growing out of your head. They get cordycepted and they climb up to a really, really high place and the fungus sprouts and the spores burst out and fall down on top of, uh, the colony. So more ants will be infected and more fungus will grow out of their brain. Um, it's actually quite cool and it's quite cool concept for zombies and The Last of Us did, is, did it well. While not being in the crowd of people who thought it was the best story ever, um, the uh video game story uh statute of limitations has long since expired on the last of us so this is no longer a spoiler free zone for the game if you have wanted to avoid spoilers for this story you should have played it already by now because it's been discussed to death on things like uh, game theorists and everybody else in the world. Or recently, this series. Um, so I, I, I want to point out, it's been so thoroughly spoiled by now. You don't have to worry. It's been so thoroughly spoiled by now. I actually caught the last two episodes of The Last of Us. And I realized without ever having played the game, oh yeah, this is what happens in the game. That's how well it's been spoiled. Exactly. So I'm just, I'm telling you I'm going to talk about spoilers and I don't even care. I'm just letting you know there is sort of a, you know, gentleman's agreement, but it's not even active anymore, folks. The the spoiler um, statute of limitations now is basically zero days effectively. That all that that gentleman's agreement got blown up in, I think whatever day Fallout Four came out, 
um, because people popped up in my feed and told me everything about it just to spoil it for me, uh, just for spite. So I think that was the last day. And then other people also mentioned similar things that happened to them for TV shows or whatever. There was a concerted campaign uh, to destroy what had been the spoiler statute of limitations that um, Penny Arcade had declared uh, some years ago. Sorry, that's the world you live in. However, we try to give you a gentleman's announcement so you can avoid this later. But they declare it's the greatest story ever because at the end of the story and at the end of this series, Joel, who is the main character, who at the beginning of the show and the beginning of the game was trying to escape the city that is overrun by cordycepted people um, with his brother and his daughter is shot by U.S. soldiers trying to keep a quarantine cordon around the city in Texas. He is shot at by them, but he escapes with nary an injury, but his daughter... His sweet, sweet daughter is shot up in his arms, and she dies. And it is actually legitimately a heart-rending scene. They give you enough time with the daughter, and they give you enough time with Joel in this introductory scene to make it heart-rending. It is effective at least for me, when I was playing the game. And it is mostly effective in the series, even though, by gum and by golly, you want to smack the braces out of her mouth. They don't know how to make, and I'm talking modern writers here, how to make an interesting 11, 14-year-old character, 11 to 14-year-old character, without making them a nag who is smarter than their dad and continually tells them how to live their life. Dad, I made pancakes. Sit down and eat before you go to work, you dummy. It's obnoxious. It's tiresome. So, even despite that, when she dies in her father's arms, it is genuinely heartrending and genuinely tragic. Um, but then the Ellie, who is the other main character, Joel and Ellie, and Ellie and Joel, again, if you've ever heard anything about the Last of Us, you know those are the two main characters, and they go on this long trip cross-country because she's immune to the cordyceps fungus, and uh, they're taking her supposedly to a lab run by a rebel group called the Fireflies, where they're going to investigate her um, 
investigate her condition. And then when they investigate her condition, they can maybe make a um, serum or vaccine or cure for the condition and save some people or at least vaccinate the rest of the human race so they can begin taking back the planet from these uh, from these zombies. But you come to find out in the finale, finale, the final episode, that in order to get the cordyceps, because as I said, not coincidentally, a few minutes ago, the cordyceps fungus grows in your brain. So, Ellie, in order to get the samples of the cordyceps virus that are growing in her body, you have to, and I'll wait for you to put this together, <laughs> cut open her brain. And Joel, who lost his daughter on the very first night uh, that this cordyceps fungus was breaking out in America, had to, had found over this journey across the land from Boston to Salt Lake City, found a surrogate daughter in Ellie at the beginning. They couldn't stand each other, but they had grown together through their mutual efforts to survive and the difficulties and heart-rending situations they went to, the brutal survival and leaning on each other. Um, and he just could not allow Ellie to be murdered or killed, sacrificed, whatever, to be taken apart, to be cut to pieces in order to perhaps maybe, but probably not, it literally, almost certainly not, save humanity. And that's the thing they gloss over. They present this in-game as if it's a sure thing, save humanity or save the girl. But in truth, it is not, getting the virus out of her head is not going to save, getting, excuse me, getting the fungus out of her head is not going to save humanity. There is zero chance that that will do any good to anybody except Ellie. Um, just because of the way funguses operate and such. So he goes to try and get her back and the fireflies start trying to kill him. So he pulls out, he, he gets a weapon from one of them and starts fighting back and kills them back because he's really good at it after 20 years of this zombie apocalypse. And he, uh, his career during this has been going outside the walls of the safety zones that they've established and killing zombies and killing bandits and killing, you know, ravening bands of evil men. 
and also having a dark past himself. And so he's really good at, at survival, really good at uh, dealing unto others what they want to deal unto him. So he shoots his way through most of the fireflies and saves Ellie. And there you have it. That's the end of the game. He kills a bunch of people. He saves his new surrogate daughter and they drive off. So the question being is, you know, they say this is a great story because it's about, you know, what would you do for someone you love? And I don't think that's as deep. I think it's an artificial um, conundrum. It's a contrived situation. And I don't think it's as deep as they think it is. I think it's a great adventure story and a great survival horror setup with fun mechanics, great monsters to fight, um, great situations that they develop in the game. Um, they do interesting things with the mechanics. They do interesting things with the situations. And it's kind of burdened down by some pretentious uh, pretentious bits that don't really enhance the game. And uh, the story does not add to the game. In fact, it kind of detracts from it. But I liked it well enough to play it through to completion three times, mostly so I could upgrade all my weapons to the max because they had a new game plus. Um, and HBO did a mostly good job of adapting the game story except when they veered off of it especially in episode three which made me want to punch people literally made me want to punch people because one of the characters that you really get to meet and like is this big burly guy who you get a uh, truck from and uh he is a uh, of the homosexual persuasion in the game, and his his uh, um, his close personal friend died um, in between visits from Joel, and he had a hard time dealing with it. But he's surviving and. Um, he toughed it out because he's a tough old bear and he's admirable. He is surviving. He's doing well. He's in a lot of pain, but he's doing well. And in the episode, they spend the entire episode on his backstory. The, the producer not only chose to the producer chose to make it a pan to assisted suicide oh, where dear. instead of the uh 
his close personal friend dying because he was killed by zombies, his close personal friend dying because he drank poisoned wine, uh, that this survivor character poisoned for him, and then that this character, who is the epitome of a survivor, is the epitome of a tough man, who is the epitome of someone who endured so much because of his innate strength, also killed himself. Mm. So they completely violated what this character was about in the game. And they make it with all this beautiful music and all this gorgeousness. And isn't this um, so beautiful that these characters chose to die together? And it was just such a betrayal of the character, such a betrayal. You know, they're talking about how awesome and wonderful this uh, the story of the game is, and yet they just completely violated uh, one of the cool parts of the game, which is people can survive tragic losses in this horrific zombie apocalypse world they don't have to give in to despair and murder themselves and it was terrible it was absolutely the worst episode so if you decide to see the last of us and there's a lot of good things in the last of us just skip that episode i believe it was episode three it was absolutely just the worst betrayal of the stories and the characters I've ever seen. And it's useless. It provides nothing to the larger story. They go to this place. They raid his place for tools and stuff. There's no interaction with the character. Uh, whereas in the game, there is interaction with the character. And it's, it's great. Uh, it's a superb little scene that they have with him. So... They take away all the interaction with this fun character and and give you nothing in return. It it uh, it has nothing to contribute to the overall story. So just skip it. Um, I enjoyed quite a lot of the series, but my final like verdict is probably don't bother. Which is sad considering how much money they spent on it and how much fun scenes there actually are in it. But yeah, my final verdict is don't bother. It's not worth your time. Oh, and also apparently it's getting really, really good reviews. People like Joel and Ellie. Um and they are in for a brutal, brutal, <laughs> hard awakening next season. Yeah, if they're going to continue to follow the um, game. Yes, they, they absolutely they, are. They better, they really should divert, diverge from the happenings in the game. Neil Druckmann has announced that he doesn't care about the haters. They're heading on. <laughs> what a dumbass. Um, so yeah, that's the last of us. Uh, terrible. Uh, I, everything except 
the scenes with Joel uh, that I saw, I only saw, I think, the two episodes and bits of other, another one or two. Anything that didn't involve Joel was was stupid and painful. It was the worst thing I'd ever seen. Uh, don't let shit libs write or show run anything and don't watch anything written by them. It's that easy. I'm not even um, I'm not even pull punches and going not political. <laughs> uh Troy Baker that, the uh the last uh the the run, the gunning at the end the big battle with the uh at the hospital uh with Joel killing everyone uh was done in a a montage and it was really cool. I enjoyed it. Um and they do have a lot of good action scenes spread through the series. Um, uh, the character Marlene, who is the head of the Fireflies, um, they actually cast the lady who played Marlene in the game. Um, the character, the actress who played uh, Ellie, shows up in one scene as Ellie's mom in the show. Troy Baker, who plays Joel, uh, showed up as a character in um, the, I think, seventh episode. Don't call me on that, because I can't remember if they had eight episodes or ten. Um, so, yeah, they really did... Uh, they did weird things to try and say, look, we're close to the game. Oh, and the show does tell you a lot about the background of the game that is sort of hinted at in the game, but you don't uh, get directly, uh, you don't get directly told in the game, but uh, you do get told in the uh, series. So I'm going to, I'm going to spoil those for you. Uh, the fungus starts in uh, India, and it's a fungus in wheat production that gets in food worldwide. And so people, uh, and they hinted at this in the game, saying they think it might be linked to foodstuffs. It is. It's linked to wheat uh, that gets into some foodstuffs. And... Uh, that's how people, they ingest the fungus and it gets into their system and infects them. Uh, although why America would be eating India wheat when they got American wheat is, is kind of confusing to me. Um, and Ellie's mom is pregnant with Ellie and she gets bit by a cordycepted person when the fireflies come running in and they so and she gives birth to Ellie shortly thereafter. The fireflies come in and uh, save Ellie. They do not know that Ellie's been has a, a minute fungal load in her system, and so they have to, you know, deal with the mom in the only way possible. And they raise the daughter, so the daughter grows up with cordyceps in her system, but not enough to make her go full-on zombie, but it's enough to um, protect her against the cordyceps, so that's why she's immune. And you actually get that in a couple of documents 
you have a, you know, one of those, what do they call them? Uh, collection quests in the game to gather documents. And the documents refer to Ellie as having the fungus in her system. Uh, one of the documents in the original hospital that you go to that's completely abandoned already uh, says that. So um, there's another document some other place. So yeah, a couple of mysteries in the, that's three mysteries in the game cleared up for you that they put in the series and actually make a scene out of that, uh, out of Ellie's secret origin, why she uh, was immune to the cordyceps. I like the game, okay? <laughs> All right. But don't watch the if show. I had a PlayStation, I'd buy it again and play it through some more. <laughs> Meanwhile, what was the other thing you wanted to talk about? Daisy Jones and the Six. I wanted mm. to talk about how they redeemed the characters. Uh, they redeemed the characters but killed the plot in the last episode. I was so disappointed. They went modern feminist on the ending of the story. I was just wanted to puke. They have two main relationships, romantic relationships. Um, and both of them were ended by the girls because you have to have strong female women um, finding themselves. And... Uh, the man literally didn't do anything, and the woman literally slept with a member of the band who wasn't her husband. Uh, and yet the show shows it as if he did something all the way wrong, and he had to go out and go to rehab and then win her back for doing literally nothing. Mm -hmm. Um. And I wanted to scream at the television. Um, but I was calm because that's what Danny Warping is known for. His calm. Um, yep. Yeah, I was thoroughly disappointed in... In... Thoroughly disappointed in how they portrayed that relationship going on the shoals. It's like he did nothing and she left him, and we're supposed to believe he was the bad guy who needs to win her back. And I wanted to scream. <laughs> she literally went out and slept with a bandmate. He literally did nothing after months of high tension temptation on tour he did nothing with anyone none of the groupies none of nothing with this woman he was falling in love with and he could have she was begging him to 
But he stayed true to his wife. And she threw that in his face. And we're supposed to believe he was in the wrong and she was completely in the right to walk away from the marriage. And I was just like, no. <laughs> no. I have watched 10 episodes of this. I thought for sure that how they were going to end it was because he did something, right? Sure. It was because yeah. they, they got involved. And that would justify her leaving the marriage and him having to maybe try to get her back or whatever. But, yeah, I was just disgusted. So Typical. It kind of redeemed the characters. They sort of went back to being characters, but at the same time, the plot just fell apart for me in that last episode. Well, that's too bad. Can't it say was, I'm surprised. It was great, though. It was so great for so long. Oh, well. Kind of like the band itself, Daisy Jones and the Six. They were so great for so long, and then they just <laughs> blew up. All right. I'm ready. You ready? Sure. We had uh, – I, I want to do mass combat real quick first. Uh, Go for it. We – introduced a little more mass combat in last week's game uh, when we played D D. and i want to talk about this because it actually relates to the main topic of the show uh, we had a setup with two giant armies like 400 irish on one side and 200 kenku on the other um, and this sort of grew out of the games and the the beefs and the action from previous sessions uh, where we were running around these mountains trying to locate the Kenku layer so that we could stop them from harassing and robbing all the people who live there and and I don't I, I know we're uh, we're a little short on time but I just wanted to say we all sat down and the game master also known as Macho Mandalf, uh, set out this scenario for us. And uh, we had all the armies lined up, and we played, instead of a traditional dungeon delve, we played mass battles in the mountains, pitting these forces against each other. And, and you might think, well, anyway, we've got 400 guys on one side, 200 guys on another side, and then there was another battle after that. But uh, we, you might think that doesn't sound like D&D. But let me tell you, uh, when we got down to it, we and we played, we didn't even play with miniatures on a map. We played fully theater of the mind in our heads. And the party members in 
the game, the people who are playing the game, the players got to direct all the troops where they would stand and where they would go and, and our overall strategy. And we also got to contribute. Most of the player characters are fighters of some flavor. And so most of us were actually there in the front lines, uh, assisting and trading blows with all the monsters. And I call it out, not because, not just because it was fun, but because it really was D&D. Let me explain. First of all, the combat structure that you play a game with, and we're talking Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, also known as First Edition. It scales up absolutely perfectly from a group of five guys, you know, five to ten guys on each side, to 400 guys on one side. With a, re a really simple scaling, you just use a ratio of 20 to 1. And so instead of five to ten guys versus five to ten guys, you've got five to ten units of 20 men each versus five to ten units of 20 men each. And the combat worked flawlessly. Granted, Mandel filled in the gaps a little bit with some rules imported from Chainmail. There are a couple of things. There are a couple of things, uh, ambiguities, you might say, in the AD&D guide that he just filled in with chainmail. And the battles ran the same. And and yes, Jeffro's got Jeffro's got the flavor details. It wasn't just a mountain. We found a volcano shaped like Mel Gibson with smoke coming out of his ears. Man, if you know, you know. But the combat procedures worked flawlessly same same uh, initiative order both armies declare what they want to do in the next minute the initiative is determined which side gets to impose their will first and uh, then execute the actions the only difference being uh, rather than having one guy versus one guy you've got you know units of 20 men each and so you simply do things like roll one attack roll for an entire unit, right? And just apply that damage to the whole other unit. And the cool thing that uh, the way we integrated the leaders was uh, we were able to contribute where it, we would, each of the players also made an individual attack roll. And our damage was added to the damage of the unit as a whole. So a, a unit of 20 men might fight as if they were like a one hit dice creature because it's 21 hit dice creature but then like the level one fighter was permitted to add his value into all of that um effectively doubling the strength of that unit if you really think about it and it was great because he said you know your your damage is going to be divided like everybody else's but if 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 I add your damage into your unit's damage and that's enough to wipe out an enemy unit, well, it's wiped out. Uh, and that happened repeatedly. Uh, the, the player characters were able to turn the battle without having any crazy spells. Notice that there were no magic users in this battle at all. Uh, just the pure martial prowess of high air, you know, level, I think we had a level three ranger and a level four paladin and everything. It just scaled up. And I know that... Um, Warpig, you 
Uh, you missed most of that battle. Uh, we actually, we we ruled your cleric was busy healing the wounded in the in the second third ranks, but uh, everybody got involved and it was a lot of fun. Um, I think uh, I think that that's the sort of thing that you should allow to develop naturally in your game. Like let these let these big armies build up. Let let fighter characters build up their own mercenary companies and armies, and uh, you know take the battle, take the battle out there. Because if you're wandering in the wilderness, you're not going to encounter a group of ten orcs like you would in a dungeon. You're going to encounter thirty to three hundred orcs. What does that mean? That's what it means. It means it means you better come prepared. Um. Anyway. Uh, I want to call that out for two things. So I put a link to the Dungeon Master's session report in the show notes on YouTube. So go check that out uh, if you're curious uh, about the rules and procedures he used. If you want to use that in your game, do it. And the other thing is, is that it is exactly the sort of thing Jeffro's talking about, uh, Jeffro Johnson talks about in his new book, How to Win at D&D, which... We, we mentioned last time, Daddy Warpig, you were the first person in the world to order it. And you've you've gone through your copy, haven't you? I have read it. Um, and what's ironic about this is Jeffro hasn't even gotten his copy. Um, I got my copy like three days later uh, after I ordered it. Um and uh, I don't know if that was just Pylum Press. Uh, uh, being really nice to me and sending it to me quickly. Um, or what. But I got mine three days later. Uh, and I read it. Now, here's the thing about the book. If you've been neck deep in the BroSR or in BroSR discussions... It's possible that you might have. Uh, it's possible you might have come across all these concepts, but you will not have come across them organized, well explained, with all of these examples set out this way, and with the cool illustrations in the book they are just not going to be there um and if you haven't been absolutely lockstep keeping up with the bro sr then a lot a lot of, if not all of this material is going to be brand brand new so yes i would absolutely recommend how to win it how to win at DD. It explains where all these rules come from, how they all exist. So it begins with the history of DD all the way back as far as you know Bronstein and even a little bit back further than that. Um, Dave Arneson's contributions to it, 
Um, and, uh, you know, David Wesley, where role-playing games themselves come from. Um, and how one-to-one time, and I love this, how keeping constant time works. Now, we saw this week a video released by, and you're going to have to help me on the name here, Matt Colville. Matt Colville. Who is he? Matt Colville. That's a great, I love that you asked that question. He's a uh, game master and YouTuber uh, who specializes in uh, game mastering, game mastering advice, tips and tricks. He's published a number of books. He's actually the biggest uh, name in DM advice and DM videos. Like this, this is the guy, everybody I've talked to, you know, outside of our group who uh, is interested in D&D at all. They watch his stuff. They refer to his stuff. Um, so he's, he's basically uh, the most popular, probably the cream of the crop when it comes to that sort of thing. I think in terms of popularity or, or, or notability, uh, Matt Mercer from Critical Role is more well-known because of the popularity of Critical Role. But people who are looking on YouTube, they're like, hey, you know, how do I deal with a problem player? Or what's this rule or something like that? Or DM tips or whatever. Uh, Matt Colville's number one guy. Which is really interesting. It's it's interesting that you didn't know because, you know, old old players and grognards like us don't necessarily encounter that sort of thing or we don't necessarily need that sort of anyway i've gone on too long that's who matt colville is okay he's the type of person who he's the type of person who would pick up on this stuff independently which is i believe what you were getting to well i i'm of the opinion he tripped over one-to-one time from questing beast and the other dude. Who was the other dude? Um, I don't remember. I don't either. I'm sure Jeffro does. He can toss it up in the chat. Um, and you know, was ruminating on it, and he mentioned that Castle Amber or Chateau d'Umberville, or whatever it was, um, which was an expert module for Moldvay Basic, X, Moldvay BX, not BECMI, Super Geek Mike, there we go, who both stumbled across one to one time in a blog which was not mentioned but which we all know what it was um 
So there is a clear chain of, of incidences. Some group may discussing one-to-one time popular, an unknown group of unknown members in an unknown time caused a massive controversy with one-to-one time and was universally denounced that one-to-one time was ever a thing that nobody ever used it back then not even Gygax himself and despite all the quotes in the GM DMG one-to-one time was never a thing and then Super Geek Mike and Questing Beast both went and made videos about how they discovered lurking in the pages of the DMG one-to-one time and how one-to-one time could make a massive difference to your campaign. And how they just happened to discover it on sure maybe some people might have discovered it first, but they weren't sure who did, so they didn't want to give anybody credit. And then Matt Colville said, hey, I was reading this module, and they assume that there's going to be one-to-one time between sessions, so your players have a chance to rest, so your players have a chance to heal, they have a chance to, and I didn't watch the video. Um, This is one of those instances, a lot of people mistake disliking something as thinking that the other person is bad. I don't think Matt Colville is a bad person, and I don't dislike him, but I just can't stand looking at his beard. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think I get, I think I understand what you're saying. I'm sure he's a nice guy and I'm sure he, you know, whatever. I don't dislike him. I don't hate him, but his beard just crawls up inside my spine and it just, I I don't like it. I can't watch it. I can't watch him on a video. I'm sorry. I'm not. I understand. Um, So he didn't claim to have, you know, discovered one-to-one time he's just saying yes i have found evidence in this module that they expect you to have one day of downtime per one day in the module and uh you know that's great because it really does give your characters time to recuperate and recover from all the rough adventuring going on so you know, that's a huge video. So all of a sudden, this has grown into a, not just the conversation where certain people are being lambasted for daring to think that this is even possible, that Gygax would never, ever do it, but thinking that, hey, this was the simply the way it was done. So much so that it was an assumed part of writing a module, even for BX. 
not just for the rules for AD&D. And uh, this video came out after How to Win at D&D. It's it's like it's like an unknown group, a shadowy cabal of ne'er do wells, uh, are influencing the zeitgeist. Yeah, putting things out there that had not been out there before. So you know. It has bubbled up from the depths and I I guess that's making it respectable now. And the best that the people who were on the other side saying that that wasn't true or that was never done or whatever can say now is, well, you guys didn't discover it. You guys get no credit for it. You guys had nothing to do with it. Whatever. Hmm. All I'm going to say is how to win at D&D says differently. So it's a great book. It points at more, even more principles of making a great role-playing game besides one-to-one -one time during downtime. Um, I mean, there's a, there's still more battles to come. Like people who keep on saying that D and D is uh, a high fantasy game. D and D is not a high fantasy game. It's not a superhero game. D&D is a game about freebooters. It's a game about tomb robbers. It's a game about mercenaries. It's a game about um, you know, freelancers for hire. It's a game about you know, Fafford and the Gray Mar Mouser. It's a game about Conan. It's a game about. I mean, they spend their time when they're not out getting gold from tombs, carousing. That's literally the rules in AD&D. Your upkeep goes to keeping up your weapons. And the rest of the money goes to carousing. Exceptions made for the monk and the paladin. And even the clerics, or more like Friar Tuck, who himself enjoyed more than a little of the tankards of beer. Okay? People who say that AD&D is about, I, you know, abstemious heroes who sit around 
contemplating the goodness of the universe like, I don't know, Joan of Arc. AD&D is not Joan of Arc, okay? You are not playing Joan of Arc unless you're a paladin. AD&D is about Conan. Seriously, that's the best I can come up with. Absolutely. Absolutely. That in fact we've we've had some discussions lately on the, you know, the Harlot table in AD&D. The urban encounters table are meant to simulate Lankmar from Fafford and the Grey Mouser stories. The fighting man was made as a reflection of John Carter of Mars. Uh, and Conan, the uh, you know the cleric is a Van Helsing, demon hunter, vampire hunter type, right? Um, we know where these influences came from, even though even as those influences fade further and further into memory, right? It's it's not necessarily a superhero party. It's not supposed to be. It, every game isn't supposed to be a Tolkien pastiche. I mean, that's so dour and serious. Don't get me wrong. I love Tolkien, and I loved the Tolkien movies. I said it! <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're going to sit there and be grim, you know, Aragorn sitting in the corner grimly contemplating the broken sword and and your destiny to be king even though you don't want to be king and and how awful it feels to be separated from your one true love and the fate of all middle earth resting on your shoulders that's not D. &D. in fact it, it's not a dnd it's it's you're not supposed to have the fate of the world resting on your shoulders all the time. You're supposed to be going out and getting treasure and getting and having fun because it's a game. Yeah. If you're taking it too seriously, if your characters have to take it too seriously, it's it's really not AD and D. Your characters are freebooters. They're adventurers for hire. They're mercenaries grave robbers, privateers. They're not evil necessarily, but they're also not... They're not, you know... Sorry. They're not... Um, so, I mean, and that's the heart of it. You know, the, the type of D&D that's been presented isn't what it was originally written, and it doesn't need to be, and 
And I think this is the most important part for me. If you go and try to imitate those kinds of games, those kinds of stories, you'll find the game better suited for those stories and you'll find them enjoyable. You know, RPGs already provide a better gaming experience than, or a different gaming experience, a better gaming experience than just about anything you could play. But if you embrace those influences and you embrace the mass combat or the war game uh, backdrop and the and the weird fiction and and everything, you're gonna have a, a superior experience, and it opens up your games to all sorts of other great things like open tables. You're gonna have you're gonna be able to hold more players. You're gonna be able to be able to have an always on game. Uh, you're gonna have people messaging you on Discord and or and on your text messages, you know, talking about what they want their characters to do in downtime. It's just everything gets better. You know what player characters should be serious about? Revenge on people who did them wrong. Not the end of the world. They should be serious about a petty official who got in their way. Uh <laughs> Or, or someone who stole something from them um, or charged them too much. They should be serious about, you know, finding the jewel of Schlampur because a, a, a daughter of, you know, a local baron um, will... Uh, will marry them if uh if they bring back this fabulous jewel i mean these are adventures these are adventures mm -hmm. um they should be serious about uh proving someone wrong about something You'll never make it to uh, to the witch's hut in the middle of the woods. You're far too weak. Oh, yeah. We'll do it right now. They slam their mugs down on the table and they drunkenly walk out of the inn. I mean, obviously, these are things the players have to decide for themselves. Yeah. But. without game masters interfering and giving them goals. Yeah. Players can and do get angry at things, get angry at people and want to go prove them wrong or, or um, destroy their lives or frame officials for something or, whatever that's when players have fun is when they can go out and embarrass someone who's who's ticked them off royally um or when they they found out that they sold a gem to a merchant that was actually way more 
expensive than they thought it was. And the merchant just lied and, and rooked them out of a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah. Player characters get, players get mad at that sort of thing. And they're willing to go to great lengths to get even. And you don't have to make an adventure if they decide to do that. You just have to roll with that as a, D, as a DM. You just have to say, okay, guys, this is your plan? Yeah, that's our plan. Okay. And, and let them go after it. You don't have to channel them. You don't have to lead them on. You just have to let them decide to do it. Um, and, and that's that's what players should be serious about is things they want to do, not what the DM wants them to do. And the game in question needs to just let the game master handle that. That's all. Yeah. Doesn't have to be anything fancy or anything. You don't need any special narrative controls. Just let the game master figure out what happens when the players do something. I mean, you guys never entered a city that you didn't depose the mayor. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> and I don't even... I didn't even expect it. Anytime. It wasn't set up that way. It just happened. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that... And, and and this is this comes from experience, right? We're not just we're not just blowing smoke uh, at anything. We're not just saying, oh, you know, this this book is good because of that, or or whatever. We're not we're not just saying this to say this. Like these are legitimately good things about a well-made game that we have experienced firsthand. Uh, it's. Everything that we've been talking about, everything that uh, you see in the book, How to Win at D&D, we've done it. This, this, is, this is not a theory book. This is an after-action report. This is what playing these types of games is like. This is how you recreate those cool stories. This is how you let your players free and have as much fun as they can. And uh, and like you said, you completely recommend uh, the book. I love it. Yep. It's about time to wrap up, GW. Anything else you want to add about the book or anything? Um, I'm assuming we're going to put a link to the page where they can buy it. Of the. Uh... That's right. There's a link in the show notes. Go check it out. Okay. Yep. I'm done. All right. Me too. Uh, hey, it's been great talking to everybody. We had everybody in the chat. Check out the live chat afterwards. We had uh, Jeffrey himself and a bunch of other great people 
uh, in the chat. Big shout out to him. Big shout out to Neil from Pylum Press uh, publishing the book. Um, and big shout out to Macho Mandalf uh, for for running the, that great session last week. That another demonstration of those concepts. Uh, really good stuff. And uh, I hope everybody listening later enjoyed it. Uh, most of all, Daddy Warpig, uh, thanks for being an awesome host. It's always good to hang out and talk about gaming with you. This is where I talk, isn't it? That's it. All right, folks. Thanks for turning in live and participating in the live chat. Um, thanks for everyone who will listen later. This has been Geek Gab. For Saturday, March 25th, 2023, you can catch us here on youtube.com slash geekgab. Once again, that is youtube.com slash geekgab. Just about every week at the same time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. And uh, we've got some great guests that are uh, coming around to high probabilities of being on the show. We will let you know when that firms up. And uh, we uh, are here. I already did that one, didn't I? Dang it. Sure. Um, <laughs> all right, folks. We are signing out for today. Uh, oh, yeah. We're available on the SoundCloud.com, on the Apple iTunes Store, and on the Google Play Store. Check us out on the device of your choice or on the web or download us to your computer because uh, that's how awesome we are. We are signing out for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.